Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. The Gist is brought to you by Sherry's Berries. Fresh berries dipped in chocolate starting at just $19.99 are a great holiday gift. Order now and use the promo code GIST to double your berries for just $10 more. That's B-E-R-R-I-E-S dot com. Click on the microphone at the top right corner and use the code GIST. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Thursday, December 17th, 2015 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. So the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductees have been announced. Let's go through some of the losers. Janet Jackson, nomination malfunction. Yes, nope. The Cars, stalled. Los Lobos, more like Los Hobos. Chic, on a losing streak. Shaka Khan, shock, she's gone. Shaka Khan, I feel for you, I really do. So here's who made it. Cheap Trick, Steve Miller, Chicago, Deep Purple, and NWA. Can I just say for the record, I like Cheap Trick and Deep Purple deserves to make it just for a bum, 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 that right there. We hear the opening riff. That's it. You're in. Okay. Steve Miller is the worst lyricist in rock and roll. We all know about the pompatus of love. We all know about abracadabra. I want to reach out and grab you. I want to take you to take the money and run, which... On first listen, or if you're high, like characters Billy Joe and Bobby Sue, might seem to make sense, might seem to be a story winding through the Midwest. But there are elements of there that are just horrific. So third stanza, we're introduced to a character. Billy Mack is a detective down in Texas. He knows just exactly what the facts is. Okay, I don't know why we'd go for the weird subject-verb agreement, but we did. He ain't going to let these two escape justice, which he thinks maybe rhymes with faxes or Texas. He makes his living off the people's taxes, which doesn't really rhyme with Texas or faxes. All right. So all those, the rhymes themselves, as a stanza, it's terrible. So what does he do with the character Billy Mac? Nothing. Nothing. Billy Mac is not referenced again. This is horrible storytelling, and yet Steve Miller is in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. So now let's talk about Chicago and NWA. NWA, of course, deserves to make it. They pretty much invented or at least mainstreamed gangster rap. Chicago, do you know what album number Chicago is on? 36. The first 13 Chicago albums predated the Super Bowl of the same Roman numeral, but then Chicago 14 and Super Bowl 14, those were both released in 1980, and since then, there have been more Super Bowls than Chicago albums. But just thinking that there's any room, that there's any forum where Chicago and NWA can both coexist. I mean, here's Chicago. If you NWA. So as an experiment, I went to the old Pandora and I made a station with only two groups in it. One was NWA, 
and one was Chicago, and I wanted to see what music that Pandora suggested to me that the Music Genome Project would say, yes, this is a good blend of Chicago and NWA. And this has never happened before. Pandora actually reached a hand out and just slapped me. I didn't know it could even do that. No, it didn't do that. Here's what it told me was a good blend. The first song was by Eazy-E. The second song was by Dr. Dre. The third song was by Foreigner. And the fourth song was How Deep Is Your Love. So they didn't really try to average the two. They went very binary, very ones and zeros. If you like both those groups, we suggest you enjoy them separately. On the show today, I spiel about how PC is killing us, even though it's not really killing us. But first, a new documentary about how the drawings in The New Yorker became the drawings in The New Yorker and in violation of New Yorker style. Henceforth, I will call them cartoons. Christmas is next week. Do you want the perfect gift? Put it out of your mind. There's no such thing, but there's a gift that will make everyone smile. The gift that will say, I didn't know I wanted that, but my God, I'm excited to get it. And that gift is berries, specifically Sherry's berries. Let me throw some numbers at you because it's not really about numbers. It's about rich, ripe berries that are dipped in dark white milky chocolatey deliciousness. They have the nuts. They got the chocolate chips. Hey, what if your intended recipient doesn't have or like nuts? Doesn't matter. You get the assortment, $19.99 for this assortment of berries. And those are the numbers. It's a 40% saving, more numbers. You could double the berries for $10 more. Now, $10 is 50% of the $19.99. So that original 40% savings, if I'm doing my math right, it comes out to something like, A 60-something percent savings. It's a crazy amount of savings on a gift that people will like. Because when it comes, you open it, you're like, what is this? There's a lot of packaging. It seems kind of cold. It's berries. Someone sent me berries through the mail. I love that person. They could deliver all your gifts fresh to your door on the date you choose. Here's how to get the amazing offer. You go to berries.com and use the special code GIST. Berries.com, you say, I don't know how to spell that. I'll spell it for you. B-E-R-R-I-E-S.com. GIST, I don't know how to spell that. It's G-I-S-T. Microphone on the top of the homepage. I don't know whether to click it. Click it. And then type in gist. Again, let me summarize everything I've been saying here. Go to berries.com, click on the microphone, and type in gist. Not spelling anything else, but recommending you order them today. So here's the, I think my opinion, most overrated cartoon in the history of The New Yorker. It's On the internet, no one knows you're a dog. That's kind of pre-2000 thinking, because from what we know about metadata collection and the Patriot Act, they probably do know you're a dog. And what with the recent tragic events in San Bernardino, not knowing about people or dogs on the internet, is it really that funny anymore? Here's the most underrated cartoon in the history of The New Yorker. Piece of rigatoni's on the phone, and he's saying... Fusilli, is that you, you crazy bastard? Love that one. Because, like, if Rigatoni could talk, I couldn't eat Fuselli after that. Because, you know, it humanized Fuselli to me. Well, someone who knows and has thought about New Yorker cartoons at least as much as I am is Leah Walchuk. She is the director of the new documentary, very semi-serious, and it takes you inside the process of the New Yorker, which is, I think Bob Mankoff, who runs it, says, we're not the bedrock, we're the, we're the pinnacle. It's more than just the high watermark of cartooning. It's like, we're... All decent, non-political cartooning lives in America, as far as I could tell. Hey, Leah, how are you? (laughs) I'm great. Your exposure to The New Yorker, when did you start reading The New Yorker? 
I started reading The New Yorker when I was in college for the fiction. There's something almost aspirational about cartoons in The New Yorker. When you first start reading them in college, that's what happened to me. I would say I always dreamed of being a New Yorker. The thing is, I thought it was cooler not to move to New York after college. So I moved to San Francisco during the first dot-com wave, and I thought that was the most boring place to be. I actually hated San Francisco, but I always wanted to move to New York, and then I fell in love in San Francisco, and we stayed in San Francisco. So I suppose reading The New Yorker, you're right, was a way to say, okay, I'm someone from New York. My dad grew up in Brooklyn, so I do have... I mean, my mom grew up in Savannah, so I was sort of like a New Yorker and a sweet Southerner, all combined into one sarcastic, sweet... It's just really confusing. So, but when you're in San Francisco and there's all that grandiosity and pretension and newspeak around you, what better tonic than a New Yorker cartoon? <laughs> exactly. I mean, the New Yorker, <laughs> the New Yorker cartoons were just so you know leveling. They just bring you down to the ground. It's just there's no high-mindedness, highbrow. I mean, no, the New Yorker, the cartoons to me were less interesting when I first got into the magazine than the caption contest. And that was just because the caption contest was a way for me to exercise my mind and the cartoons were were just funny. But that was when I first got into it because I really wasn't paying attention to the cartoons as much as probably most people were. I was reading the fiction and I was trying my hand at the caption contest. I sucked. I was terrible at it. To be honest, I saw Wordplay, the documentary, about the crossword puzzles and the New York Times and I thought, There's a film about the one funny thing, the one interactive thing in the New York Times. Maybe there should be a film about the one funny thing in the New Yorker. They're sort of parallel, you know, publishing institutions. Yes. So I started thinking as I was, you know, working on the caption contest, I started thinking about, you know, what are the cartoons of the New Yorker? What's the history? Who are the cartoonists? I didn't know anything about them. When I first started telling people I wanted to make a film about it, some people would say, oh, I love that guy. As if there was one that person <laughs> who made all the cartoons in what New What a varied Yorker. style. <laughs> exactly. He's neurotic in so many different ways. <laughs> right. All right, let's talk about the cartoon contest. I'll f- give you my opinion, then I'll ask you two questions. My opinion is it is an abomination against God and man. My two questions are, what do the cartoonists think of it? Because I've asked a bunch of them, and I, th- I sense they're reticent to say, we don't like it. We're pros. We don't like opening it up to the hoi polloi. I know that phrase is wrong. But at the same time, they do get paid if you run their cartoon for a contest. So first question, what do you think that the cartoonists think about it? And then have you changed your tack, knowing what you know about the craftsmanship that goes into a cartoon? Have, have you changed your opinion about the contest? Yes and yes. Okay, first of all, I talked to every cartoonist that I interviewed about the caption contest. Yeah. And their responses had a huge range. I mean, I would say... Most of the older cartoonists hate the contest. You're right. They feel like it's totally offensive to their craft. It's totally offensive to their talent. They're like, come on, Calvin Trillin wouldn't allow the editor of The New Yorker to lop off the last paragraph of his article. Right. I'm Chris Rock. I'll give you my setups, and then you take the punchline. What the heck? Yeah. Uh, But a lot of the younger cartoonists that I interviewed were fine with it. In fact, you're right. It does help them make a sale. I mean, if they sell a cartoon and they lop off the caption and still print it in the magazine. It's still their work getting shown. What do you think of it? Have you changed your mind about the cartoon caption contest? I can't do it anymore. Yeah. I have no interest. It's ruined for you. It's completely ruined. This film, I can't even look at cartoons anymore. How does Mankoff do it? 
So we have a, Bob Mankoff is the guy, is the gatekeeper. He's obviously he's great at cartooning, but he really it's not just hey whoever had that job is gonna you kind of can't go wrong. There's so the the ten cartoons he rejected are actually pretty funny cartoons. There are how many spots in each ish, issue? Twelve. About seventeen. Okay, so seventeen. They get how many submissions for those seventeen? About a thousand. Okay, so that's harder to get into the New Yorker than Yale. So you kind of can't go wrong, but he is still very good. But how does he? How is he able to see things fresh? How is he able to feel humor at this point anymore? I know. I I think he has got one of the craziest minds of anyone that I've met and certainly anyone that I talked to over the course of making this film because he can still appreciate humor and he can still crack jokes. I honestly don't know how he does it. He says, you know, he does it when he's in a bad mood. He does it when he's in a good mood. He, he has to, right? He has to somehow sift through it. All of these cartoons that he's seeing from people he knows well, from people he's never met before who are just sending them through the mail that, you know, make it through the first gatekeeper, the, his assistant. Honestly, I don't know how he does it without falling over and dying every week. So your cameras were there when just streams of applicants submitted. So what's the process? You have to come in and he talks, he talks to you about <laughs> your cartoons? That seems weird. You know, it's weird, but it's also wonderful because think of who cartoonists are. They're solitary artists. They're in their minds all week trying to come up with a batch of 10 to 15 cartoons to submit to The New Yorker. Because you can't just have one idea and submit one cartoon and then you're a cartoonist at The New Yorker. Yes, unlike Elaine would have us believe. (laughs) Exactly. You know, that episode was written by Bruce Eric Kaplan, who is a New Yorker cartoonist. He's the B-E-K. Back in like the 40s and 50s in the heyday of cartooning, there were dozens of magazines that you could you know, sell your cartoons yes. to. And they all different, slight, slightly different flavors. Playboy, as you can imagine, a bit more ribald, right? <laughs> the New Yorker, a bit more highbrow. But like Collier's had cartoons, yeah. Exactly. And now there's just the New Yorker. So whereas before the New Yorker never saw, never invited new cartoonists back to meet the cartoon editor, the art editor, now Bob has opened the door to any cartoonist who wants to try to get into the New Yorker because... They're the only game in town. Yeah. He's got to groom them. Like he says, they're the major leagues and the minor leagues. They have got, he, he's, he's got to encourage people and help them see how they can make their captions better by, you know, shortening the caption, changing words around, how to make the drawings better. I think he mostly gives commentary about the captions and less so about the art. I think when Lee Lorenz was the cartoon editor and the art editor, he gave a lot more um, feedback on the art. The personalities of the cartoonists. What did you find about the kind of person who becomes a cartoonist? A lot of them describe themselves as more observers than participators. And the way that they participate is by observing the world and then sort of twisting it and giving it back to us to help us see the world differently. Oh, geez, you can't relate to that as a documentarian, can you? (laughs) How much do you get uh, yeah. if they submit if they uh, run your cartoon? Six seventy five. Yeah. So does anyone do it as a full time job and live on it? There is a cartoonist we interviewed. Unfortunately, we didn't put him in the film. He's in L.A., William Hayfley. And he said, I do make a living as a cartoonist. He has a very modest life, and he's fine with that. How do you th- what do you think about, how do you uh, react to the fact that you could go and right now witness 100 New Yorker cartoons online all in a row? See, I don't like that. I hate that. I don't Me too. See, I don't like seeing 10 in a row on my iPhone. Yep. I can't stand it. I get saturated after three. Yeah. I'm like done after three in a yeah. row. And I don't know because I'm, you know, a lot of people flip through the magazine to find the cartoons, but there's something about the flipping the paper that like 
you know, clears your mind. I described it as like the coffee between the perfumes that you're sniffing. It helps like reset. It's a reset button. But when yeah. you're just on your, you're swiping on your phone or your iPad, it's complete. There's no reset button there. You're just like building and building and building until you get to the point of not appreciating any humor. That's exactly. Why, that's why I don't understand how Bob does what he does. Right. Because imagine that times 100 because that's what he's doing. Right. But I guess the difference is he is the pig sniffing out truffles. He's not the restaurant guest who's so psyched to order some truffle dish. And uh, He's the skinniest, tallest Jewish pig you've ever met. <laughs> There's a cartoon right there. Leo Walchuk is the director of Very semi-serious. It is available on HBO Go and other places where documentaries go after they've, you know, made a big splash at the Maui Film Festival and the New Yorker Film Festival and other film festivals. Leah, thanks so much. Thank you so much. Give the gift of Slate Plus to another Slate fan in your life and they'll receive all the benefits of membership. Ad-free podcasts, bonus podcast segments, access to our ambitious multi-part Slate Academies, and much more, like the joy of being an insider, that knowing wink that you share with another Slate Plus member. Just great for breaking the ice, meeting people, seeming smarter, and your own ongoing self-education. No gift wrapping required. Give Slate Plus today. Visit slate.com slash giveplus. And now the spiel, political, but kind of incorrect. The world, as presented by the Republican candidates collectively, is a world I think I'd like to live in. What, you're saying? Aren't they all doomsayers? Aren't they all saying we're headed to hell and our country's been stolen and America's a joke? Yeah, there is that vibe. But when you listen to how they describe the problems, they seem really, really solvable. Like, let's say global warming. How do we solve global warming? To a guy like me, it seems really hard. I've been following that Paris crisis, 1.5 degrees Celsius versus 2 degrees Celsius. It seems to me like no matter what we do, we're all in a lot of trouble. But to the Republicans, we don't need to solve global warming. It's all a big hoax. And that's pretty comforting. You know, we're always told that GOP voters, we're told over and over again, you know, they're so anxious. There's a great unease among GOP voters. And this is why Trump has been explained, and for a time, the rise of Carly, the rise of Carson, explained by the fact that they all spoke to the great anxiety among these GOP voters. Imagine if they actually believed in global warming. Imagine how anxious they'd be then. I don't know if believing in evolution would make them more or less anxious. I'm trying to think about this. It would probably make them more anxious, right? They'd worry that their pinkies would fall off really soon. But when it comes to terrorism, which in real life is a really hard problem to solve, in the GOP, it's a pretty simple solution. Here's Dr. Ben Carson. Right now, the United States of America is the patient. And the patient is in critical condition and will not be cured by political correctness and will not be cured by timidity. Trump says this all the time. Political correctness is killing us. Ted Cruz hit on it, too. It's not a lack of competence that is preventing the Obama administration from stopping these attacks. It is political correctness. Now, the Cruz claim was attached to something tangible. This assertion that you've been hearing all the time on Fox and from conservatives. We didn't monitor the Facebook posting of the female San Bernardino terrorist because the Obama DHS thought it would be inappropriate. She made a public call to jihad and they didn't target it. Well, that the FBI disclosed yesterday is false. 
there were no public calls to jihad. All of the terrorist statements were on private channels, encrypted, etc. Here's FBI Director James Comey. Those communications are direct private messages. So far in this investigation, we have found no evidence of posting on social media by either of them at that period of time and thereafter reflecting their commitment to jihad or to martyrdom. I've seen some reporting on that, and that's a garble. All right, but let's go on to examine more of Cruz's claims. Nadal Hassan communicated with Anwar al-Awlaki, a known radical cleric, asked about waging jihad against his fellow soldiers. The problem is, because of political correctness, the Obama administration, like a lot of folks here, want to search everyone's cell phones and emails and not focus on the bad guys, and political correctness is killing people. Thank you. Well, on the one hand, Cruz is criticizing the Obama administration for searching everyone's cell phones and emails. Yet on the other hand, he's criticizing the Obama administration for not intercepting messages sent by the San Bernardino killers that were as private as cell phones or emails. All right. They are, admits those, somewhat misleading claims. There are some true statements, though. Hassan did, in fact, communicate with al-Laki, and that was dismissed by the FBI. Well, I should tell you, it was dismissed by some parts of the FBI. In San Diego, they were looking at al-Laki, and they were really concerned. But their counterparts in D.C. were not concerned. And at one point, a D.C. FBI agent told a San Diego FBI agent that we're not going to go chasing after every Muslim guy who visits extremist sites. Here's CBS reporting on what the WFO, which is the FBI's Washington field office, said. One San Diego agent asked why Washington was so disinterested in Hassan, even asking if Hassan was working undercover for the FBI. We were wondering if we were missing something. The Washington agent responded no, but also noted the emails that he'd seen seemed innocuous. He wrote, Hassan was conducting U.S. Army-sponsored research that was online with the questions he sent Alaki. He added, WFO does not currently assess Hassan to be involved in terrorist activities. So why were these mistakes made? Ted Cruz, Rudy Giuliani, they say they were made because of political correctness. Well, if you want to interpret it that way, if you want to interpret political correctness as playing an outsized role, I can't say there's zero factual basis. I told you about that quote, we can't go chasing after every Muslim guy who visits an extremist website. And it's true, they can't. But when that Muslim guy turns out to be a terrorist, you look pretty stupid in retrospect. But only viewing the challenges of San Bernardino, of Major Hassan, through the prism of political correctness is really narrow. It's really self-serving to your own talking points. And it really does pander to the worldview of your base. It also ignores the massive missteps of the Hassan investigation. I don't think a fair interpretation of the fairly thorough assessment that the FBI did after their handling of the case primarily points to political incorrectness. Though the report, which was put together by a former FBI director, got little attention at the time, it's pretty horrific. The FBI database that intercepted all these emails, remember, Hassan's a member of the military, so there's no question that his emails can be looked at. But the FBI database didn't even group messages by sender. So there was no one in the FBI who realized this was the same army officer sending so many emails. They thought maybe there were just one or two unanswered or answered emails at a time. And even when those emails were flagged, the request for follow-up languished. It wasn't due to political correctness. It was just due to bureaucracy. 
The details of that investigation are really shocking, but the public discussion afterwards was muted. Critics centered on whether it was an instance of workplace violence or a terrorist incident. It was both, of course. Obama's critics then, as is the case with the San Bernardino shooters, harped on the political correctness angle because that's what lights a fire under their base. Failure to effectively manage a huge bureaucracy that's something that's a lot more daunting, and it's not necessarily in the skill set of a surgeon, of a real estate developer, or of a one-term senator, right? So when one of those guys say, I will drive a stake through the heart of political correctness, you can believe it. When they say, I will competently reform a massive bureaucracy to effectively find needles in haystacks, to find lone wolf terrorists who are loosely inspired by, but not actually coordinating with ISIS, that actually turns out to be an unsolvable or at least daunting problem. And that's it for today's show. Some people call Andrea Salenzi a space cowboy. Some call her the producer of The Gist. Executive producer Andy Bowers is a joker, is a smoker, is a midnight toker, is president of the fan club for Al Roker. The Gist, we get our loving on the run which is really good for the heart rate, but terrible for the snuggling in the afterglow. Oomperu, deperu, duperu, and thanks for listening. <laughs>